Are you recording now? Recording. <laughs> this is gonna sound weird. Things are about to get weird. Just get to the murder. Welcome back. Welcome. Uh, we had a bit of a hiatus last week um, because mental health is important. And sometimes you just have a shitty day at work and you say, you know what? I ain't going to do anything when I get home. I'm just going to lay into bed. And that's what we did last week. I, I didn't, but I allowed Sydney that time. I came home and I slaved over uh, legal books. Now, I want to tell y'all, if so, I'm going to tell you this right up front on our 100th episode. If anybody's listening to this and you think you want to go to law school and they tell you that your third year is going to be a piece of cake, they lied to you. They lied to you a million times. I'm so much more busier this year than I was my first year. I'd be running around from the courthouse to this and that. So I'm just telling y'all, don't believe them. Don't believe a word they say. Don't believe it. And I'm off my soapbox. Um, you should already know that they lied to you because the people who told you that were lawyers. And as we know, lawyers, the only thing they are good for is lying. Hey, hey, not this one. I just told you the truth. I told you the straight truth about law school. She could be lying right now. We can't. I wouldn't trust her as far as I could throw her. And I have terrible upper body strength. <laughs> you can't throw me very far. <laughs> but like we... She's so heavy. Oh, yeah. I'm just I'm just weighed down. <laughs> I am pretty heavy considering I have, you know, carrying all these books. No wonder I got a humpback. I've been carrying heavy books for going on however many years of my life. We start when we're in kindergarten and then it's, it never ends. It, it really doesn't ever end. Uh, earlier today, I, I'm not even in school, and I lugged a heavy-ass book bag around, uh-huh. so it, it never ends. The back pain only gets worse from here. Oh, yeah. And this is the perfect way to start out the 100th episode of This Is Gonna Sound Weird, which is a podcast, if you're curious. That's what was going on here. Mm-hmm. It is a podcast. Um, and we feel like we're a hundred years old, so it's always seems fit that we're on our hundredth episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, each week, and you know, for about a hundred weeks now, we've chosen a different theme about all things true crime, paranormal, and everything in between. Uh-huh. But this week, we decided to do something a little different. We're revisiting our favorite theme that we have covered. So I don't know what kind of theme Taylor's chose. I mean, I kind of. I have an idea of what it could be because it's got to be a topic that we've covered before, Mm -hmm. but I certainly don't know what actually she's covering. This is true. So, yeah. But, uh, Taylor, go ahead and tell me what your favorite theme that we've covered is and the horrible story associated with it. Okay. So, I, the theme that I've chosen is episode 19 which was family man murders. Ooh. Oh, I already know where this is going. Yes. Um, I've chosen this case. Um, may it have been a mistake based on my current state? Possibly. Um, but we're going to see. I am locked and ready to go. So I'm not going to tell you all right off the bat what it is. Sydney feels like she already knows but 
we'll we'll see if she's right. All right, I'm gonna test my psychic ability and context clues. Okay, so these are my sources, and I will have to say, people, this is this is a long story for me. I'm not gonna try to drag it drag it out more than I need to, but you get the idea. Okay, here we go. So my sources: Wikipedia.com, obviously, Biography.com, ReadersDigest.ca, and it was an article by Kenneth Miller. All that's interesting.com, an article by Mark Oliver that was checked by John Kurowski. True Crime Garage, which is a podcast, and Morbid, which is a podcast, and probably just some other general information that I've gathered throughout the years. Now, it's February 25th, 2005. A man's heading home from his office to go eat lunch with his wife, and he gets pulled over. You know, pretty normal. People, you know, people have been there, but... Speeding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but this was no routine traffic stop. This man was pulled over by a line of police cars that had been watching and trailing him. And the reason that they were trailing him, you may ask? Well, this man was actually a serial killer who the police had been trying Ooh. to catch for decades. And this man's name? Dennis Rader. And if that doesn't strike a bell, he's also known as BTK. That's right. I'm covering the infamous BTK, and as you can tell from my voice, I am just so excited. Yep. Um, Taylor has been threatening to do this story <laughs> for years now. A hundred episodes worth. She keeps saying, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it. Yeah, and you know... Now, and finally, she, she put her money where she, her mouth was. And, you know, I did it also during... This time right now where I'm incredibly busy. Like, when I get home from school, I do work from the time I get home to the time I go to bed. But I'm also thinking maybe that this was the best time because I feel like once you're in the groove of working hard, it's easier just to keep pushing. When you are in the summertime and you're just chilling and going to work, it's like you just don't have the push. So, here we go. Now, I will say before I continue, this story is long and detailed and I have gone into as much detail as I think is possible in this podcast format, but if you want a longer one, True Crime Garage has a four-part series that gets down to the dirty details, but if you don't know anything about BTK, this is going to be a good, uh, you know, dive into it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, throughout this, I'm not going to call him BTK because that's what he wants to be called. I'm probably going to call him Dennis or Raider, so... Or that punk bitch. Uh, exactly. That dude with the bad mustache. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, we're going to start from the beginning. Dennis Lynn Raider was born March 9th, 1945 in Kansas. His mother was named Dorothea May Raider and his father was William Elvin Raider and he had three brothers. Dennis grew up in Wichita, Kansas and both of his parents worked really long hours. They didn't have much time to pay attention to their kids and because of this, Dennis felt ignored by his mother and he resented her for it. Now, why he didn't resent his father, the world may never know. Um, probably because he's sexist. Why wouldn't you? And terrible. <laughs> That's just an opinion. Y'all can make y'all's opinion about Dennis Rader's character after I finish this. Um, I'm I'm sure it's gonna be 
not far from what yours is. And the crazy thing is, well, I'll get to it. The people in his community did have a very different idea of his character. So, growing up, mm-hmm. Dennis was fairly unremarkable. He did okay in school. He participated in fairly normal activities, like being a Boy Scout. And, you know, he participated in his youth group at church. But when he grew into a teen, he started exhibiting some very troubling signs. Uh, as is common of many serial killers, he would torture and kill small animals. And this escalated very quickly, and he moved on to exhibiting some signs of having sadistic sexual fantasies and tend- tendencies. And uh, the fantasies went a little further than fantasies, and he started to act out on some of these sexual fantasies that he had, such as being a voyeur, so, you know, like, he would watch people. He engaged in autoerotic asphyxiation and cross-dressing, which is, like, obviously, that is not a thing that's bad, obviously, in and of itself. But when you hear kind of how it comes about, it's like, it ain't great. Because of how he obtains mm-hmm. these clothing items. Um, mm-hmm. He would often spy on his female neighbors. And while he himself was dressed in women's clothing. And this included women's clothing. And particularly their underwear that he had stolen from them. So that's why mm-hmm. it's not great. And... Uh, it ain't no. good. It's not. It's not good. To, it's not good to steal. No, not at all. No matter what it is, don't steal. But you know what? It, this. These were the days before uh, OnlyFans. Yeah. Now, perhaps he could have ordered it online and would have gotten there in two, three days. Yes, that's very true. That would have been much a much better option. Um, and he also, uh, like I said, engaged in autoerotic asphyxiation which consisted of him binding himself around his arms and his neck with ropes and other binding instruments. So basically he would tie himself up and then he would masturbate while being tied up. And sometimes he would take photos like of himself doing this. So just like not good. Like that's just uh, unhealthy to the highest degree. Mm -hmm, I agree. Uh, so obviously, this is very disturbing, but on the outside, he was able to keep a pretty normal appearance. He graduated high school, and he went on to attend Kansas Wesleyan University, but he had pretty mediocre grades there, and he ended up dropping after just a year. And after this, um, he did what any young man with nothing else to do does. Can you guess what that is? I mean... If he ain't got nothing better to do, I know all of the teenagers in my hometown hung out in a Walmart parking lot. So, um, you know, close. It's it's a little bit Am more I of a close? career. It's more of a career choice. I'll give you one more hint. It's a career choice. He worked at the Walmart. Uh, no, he joined the military. <laughs> he joined the United States Air Force, and he was in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970. And I'll say, I forgot in this whole story that he was in the military but I swear almost every serial killer at some point has been in the military we need to start keeping a tally he ended up having to get discharged from the military and when he was discharged he moved back to Kansas specifically to Park City which is a suburb of Wichita and here he worked in the meat department of an IGA supermarket And his mother also worked at the store as a bookkeeper. So just regular old job. And 
Mm-hmm. Around this time, he met a woman named Paula Dietz, and the two ended up getting married on May 22nd, 1971. And they went on to have two children together named Carrie and Brian. So, you know, right now, Dennis's life is pretty normal. In 1973, he decides he's going to go back to college. And this time, he, he kept it, you know, more simple, close to home. He went to a local community college and got an associate's degree in electronics. And then he enrolled in Wichita State University and ended up graduating in 1979 with a Bachelor of Science in Administration of Justice. So, like, seemingly a well, you know, a stand-up guy. But during this time that he was going to college and working, um, he was working during this time as an assembler for the Coleman Company. And then he started working for ADT, which is a security service business. And he actually started working there in 1974. Um, A lot of... The stories about BTK go into the fact that he worked for ADT and that's how he was able to kind of get a feel for people's homes. I'm not going to go into the details. Just know he worked for ADT. And obviously as a worker for ADT, you're going to get a feel of people's homes in the community and you're going to understand their security measures, clearly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, uh, you probably know how to disarm it if you're the one that set it up. This is very true. I And you might... And you might also know, you know, people just get those signs and they don't actually have the security (laughs) system. You would know who's got the sign, who has the security system. I know uh, in my old place that I used to live, my dad made me get a security system. The security guy that installed my system was there for like an hour and a half. And all I could think of was this man's going to come back and kill me. Yeah. We have a sign outside the house. We do not have a system. But we do have a dog that will probably eat your ass up, so. All right. You heard it, people. Um, she doesn't have a security system, so her address is 1234 Drive. Exactly. Drive Lane. Yeah. I almost set off my parents' security system the other day. I was home, and I was trying to leave, and I was trying to be quiet, and I thought they had changed the password, but then I was using the wrong password. It was a whole thing. The dogs come running in there. My mom come in there in her pajamas. And I'm like, God dang. They're so loud when they go off, too. Thought the police was going to come. <laughs> Anyways, so, like I said, Dennis was working for ADT. And around the time he started working for ADT in 1974, he began his murdering. And his first murders took place on January 15th, 1974. And on this day, his first, like, you know, branch out into this murdering business, he killed four people, and they were all members of a single family. So, Mm. on this day, part of the Otero family was at school, and the other part was at home. And Dennis, this morning, severs the family's phone line and then enters the home. So after entering the home, Dennis proceeded to kill 38-year-old Joseph Otero, 3-year-old Julie Otero, 9-year-old Joseph Otero Jr., and 11-year-old Josephine Otero. The Oteros had three older children named Charlie, Danny, and Carmen, who were the ones that were at school that day when these murders took place. And sadly, they were the ones that discovered the murders when they got home from school. 
So they came home from school and they saw a horrifying scene, obviously. They saw their father lying on the carpet of his bedroom where he had been strangled with a belt. Their mother was on the mattress and had been strangled with a clothesline and both had been bound with a thin cord around their wrists and ankles. Joseph Jr. was found in his bedroom and he had been asphyxiated with a plastic bag. And this one is awful. Josephine, the 11-year-old, was found hanging from a pipe in the basement and she was partially dressed. So indicating that he had obviously engaged in some sort of sexual assault. So obviously the police were absolutely baffled. I mean, this uh, this doesn't happen in a town. I don't think Wichita is very big. It doesn't happen in that size of a town. Honestly, just have a murder. I, it don't really happen anywhere. It's just not, obviously not normal. But at the time, they weren't able to identify the killer. They, you know, the Oteros didn't have any connection with, you know, Dennis Rader. And so it was a stranger on stranger crime, it seemed like. And those, obviously, those are harder to solve. Mm -hmm. So, but, you know, after Dennis got his taste for murder, he didn't take long to kill again. And this time, it was April 4th, 1974. And on this night, a woman named Catherine Bright, she was 21, she arrived home with her brother, Kevin, and Dennis was waiting in Catherine's apartment for her to get home. He had been hiding in her home, like, all night. This was so, when I first heard this part of the story, I was on my way to stay at, by myself in an apartment for my first time ever, by myself, and I was so scared. I was like, why would I listen to this right when I'm about to live alone for like a full last month in a place that the door you could literally punch a hole through probably because it's old as hell. Not great. Not great. So Dennis was in Catherine's apartment and when she entered, he pulled out a gun and shot her brother in the head and then stabbed Catherine to death. But... Catherine's brother didn't die. He survived and was able to go get help. But Dennis fled the scene before they could catch him. So, you know, maybe for Dennis, this was a bit of a close call. Someone survived this attack. There was a potential, you know, that he could have got caught. And so he didn't commit any more murder um, that year. But in October of that year, he did send his first letter to the police. Yes, people, he's one of them letter writers. Now, the reason that he sent this letter was because another man in town had allegedly confessed to the Otero family murders, and Dennis was upset. He wanted his credit for this murder. So, Mm -hmm. he called the editor of the Wichita Eagle, which is a local paper, and told them that they need to go look at a mechanical engineering book at the Wichita Public Library, and there they would find a note. So the editor reported this to the police. The police went to look at the book, and there was, in fact, a letter wedged in it, and it read, in part, quote, those three dude you have in custody are just talking to get publicity. The code words for me will be, bind them, torture them, Kill them. B-T-K. You see, he added again. They will be on the next victim. So, this is where the loser names himself. 
to the press. Now, mm-hmm. this letter, I, that obviously wasn't all of it. That was just like some pertinent parts and basically where he names himself. But the letter did confirm for authorities that it did very well likely come from the actual killer because it contained letters. I mean, it contained details that were unknown to the public at the time about the murders. Mm-hmm. So they were like, oh, shoot, this is probably this is probably true. And as I said, mm-hmm. uh, you may have noticed the letter had like odd grammatical errors in it that were, as the letters continue to come in, they get really specific and that'll come back later. The, these odd grammatical errors. So following the sending of this letter, Dennis took a break from killing for a while, which makes some sense for him because he was in the middle of raising a family. So he didn't have time mm-hmm. to murder people because he was raising a family. Because he had two kids and a wife and he was doing family things. Um, mm-hmm. But he couldn't stay inactive for long because in 1977, he committed his next murder. So it's March 17th, 1977. Dennis entered the home of Shirley Vion. Dennis was able to enter the home by getting Shirley's five-year-old son to let him in. So, like, he's not a Aww. yeah, he's not a guy that like a kid would probably be scared of. The kid may have even seen him around because at some point too, he was also a like dog catcher in the area. So he may just been a guy mm-hmm. that the kid seen saw around. And so, once Dennis enters the home, he barricades that five-year-old and the rest of his siblings in a bathroom, and then. He went into Shirley, so their mother's bedroom, and he strangled her. Dennis left the scene following the murder, leaving the kids where they were in the bathroom, but the children were able to escape and were able to give police a vague description of the man who entered their home. But at this point, they still could not figure out who this guy was, which is just so crazy because I feel like he looked pretty distinct. I mean, the mustache, people. The mustache. Unless he was, I can't remember if he wore, like, I a mean, disguise or something, though. Perhaps well, he just looks like every other man in, like, the Midwest. Yeah, I was also going to say it was the 70s, so, like, I guess a lot of people had a mustache. Yeah, like, I think of, like, if you were looking for a very generic southern man, it'd be, like, a little heavy set, <laughs> facial hair, has a trucker uh, hat on. Yeah. <laughs> boots yeah (laughs) like so that's what i wonder if it was just sort of generic but what's interesting is i'm like why did he initially kill the entire family and then didn't kill these children i know it is odd and after the family incident like i'm pretty sure he only kills women and he does not kill any other children. And there's another child that's involved in one of these that he also does not kill. So it, yeah, it's very confusing. I mean, obviously I don't want him to kill children, but, you know. And who knows? Maybe since he had his own children, he was like, oh, I don't want to kill children anymore because now I think I have some sort of morals. Who knows? Later in the year of 1977, Dennis kills again. On December 8th of this year, he strangled 25-year-old Nancy Fox. And following this murder, he went to a payphone and called the police. He told the dispatcher, quote, You will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing. 
He did this because he wanted to point the police to his acts and he, you know, he wanted to take credit, but obviously he doesn't want to get caught, but he wanted the credit. So not long after that murder in January 31st of 1978, so a little over a month later, he sends another letter. And on this letter, he sends an index card with a poem on it to the Wichita Eagle. And the poem begins like this, quote, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, wilt thou be mine? Now, the Eagle didn't realize that this was a nod to his murder of Shirley Vion. Mm. So he was being an asshole. And, you know, it's January 31st. So the date's kind of important because the paper thought that this poem was a Valentine's Day poem. So the clerk just forwarded it to be published in the classified section of the paper. Oh, God. So, yeah, I mean... But who would think, oh, this is a poem from a murderer that's trying to blah, blah, blah. Like, no one does that. That doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? And I guess on that one, he wasn't like, yeah. by the way, this is from BTK. Yeah, it's not like he signed it. So. <laughs> oh, my God. It wasn't covered in blood, so I can't I can't blame the newspaper person too yes, much. But he did blame the newspaper people because he was mad that they didn't realize that this little note was about the murder so he was like i'm gonna send another message and this time he's gonna make it a little bit more direct and this time he sends it to a tv station it's wichita based cake tv and cake is spelled k-a-k-e so and this message said in part, quote, how many people do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? He again mm-hmm. claimed responsibility for the Otero murders and for the Bright murder, the Vienne murder, and the Fox murder. So he basically was claiming all of these murders. And then he decided that he was going to lay okay. out a list of nicknames that he thought would be good. Um, you know, he already has BTK, but he thought there might be some other nicknames. Um, and these included the BTK Strangler, the Wichita Hangman, or the Asphyxiator. Such a dweeb. stupid. And he also, in the letter, he said that he was driven by Factor X. And he says that this is something that motivates like, some of the most famous serial killers, such as Jack the Ripper, Son of Sam, and the Hillside Stranglers. So he's trying to, like, put himself, you know, on the on what he would think is the pedestal with these other serial killers. He's like, we're all driven by this same thing called Factor X. Now, who knows what that is, but that's what he terms it as. It's that TV show where they be singing. <laughs> yes. And it's got Simon Cowell on it. Oh, yes, exactly. Um, so, yeah, not great. Now, following this letter, the Wichita police chief, Richard Lemonian, called a news conference to state for the first time that BTK was acting in the area and that it was very likely that this killer is going to kill again. Now, that's very scary. You know, if the police get on the TV and they're like, we got a serial killer and I'm going to tell y'all, he's probably going to do it again. So watch out. But we also have no idea who he is. I'll be like, oh, okay. I'm never leaving my house then. Don't. It's kind of like uh, when your mom or your grandma kind of watches a little bit of the news and they give you just enough information to horrify you, but <laughs> yes. not enough 
it's they're not at, uh, informed enough to actually help you uh-huh. except instead of it being your grandma it's the people yeah. that are supposed to know everything mm-hmm. yeah um but that's also really unhelpful because i think about when ted bundy was out and about mm-hmm. like they knew that he targeted women who had long brown hair so like women just left and right were like chopping their hair off and dyeing it other colors so like you can't even you can't even do that you're like i don't know what his mo is i don't know how to protect myself oh yeah and then i also say well i'm just never gonna leave my house well this guy is hiding in people's houses so like he's Mm -hmm. he's gonna come in like he came on the in on the otero murder while they were literally at home and it was the morning time like when he came in so and I don't know. I think I'm safe in the mornings. I just think I'm not safe when it gets dark outside. And that's not true. But that's what I think. Mm-hmm. So. On April 28th, 1979. is the first time that Dennis attempts to murder someone. And he is unable. And so on this day. Dennis breaks into 63 year old Anna Williams' home. Also his age range for his victims varies widely. So there's. Mm-hmm. It's like. Okay. It's just, if you're a woman, you're fair game. Um, and maybe even if you're not a woman, who knows? So, Anna Williams, he, he broke into her home, and he was waiting on her like he did for so many others. He was waiting on her to return home, but it took her too long to come home. So, he gave up and left. Um... But of course, he couldn't just leave her alone. About two months later, mm-hmm. he mailed her some personal items of hers that he had stolen when he broke into her home. And along with these items, he included a, another poem. And the poem was entitled, Oh, Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? Like, what? That is... Mm. first of all if i was her i'd be i would be out of there i ain't never coming back to that house again and if you're like 63 it, absolutely not that said like if you're 63 it could have been a house that you've lived in your whole life you might have raised your kids there and then this guy comes in and just like ruins every sense of safety you ever thought you had Mm-hmm. now following this attempted murder he goes quiet for a few years And during this time, the police released some information, some more information about him, you know, to try and figure out who this is. So they released a phone call regarding Nancy Fox's murder in an attempt to get some, some information, but they're really not able to get anything. But in 1985, Dennis kills again, and this time he kills close to home. So on this night, a woman named Maureen Hedge had been at bingo with her boyfriend and she returned home. That night, Dennis took Maureen from her home, which was uh, just down the street from his own house. So it's his literal neighbor. So he took her from her home. Now, let me just say, this woman is someone that he knew well. Uh, his daughter, yeah. yeah, his daughter Carrie said that he would literally wave to this woman like every morning as he was going to work or whatever. Like he would act so normal. And on the night that he conducted this crime, which this part has always just like baffled me, it was a very normal night. Um, he was actually chaperoning a Boy Scout retreat for his son. And so he was at the Boy Scout retreat and he made up an excuse to leave the camp because he said he had to go do something. I don't know if this is exactly it, but I'm pretty sure I remember him being like, I have a headache. I need to go to CVS and get some headache medicine. And so he leaves. When he leaves, he goes to Maureen's house and murders her by strangling her. 
And this one's weird. This is different than the rest. After he murdered her, he took her body. And he took her body to the church that he was the president of. So he was the president of the church council. And he took her body to the church. Once he got her to the church, he photographed her body in various bondage positions. And once he'd done this, he took plastic sheets that he had stored there in preparation. Stored plastic sheets in the church for preparation. And later dumped her, oh dumped her body in a ditch where it was later found. Now, this murder is the wildest one for me because it is, like, the most escalation. The most, like, almost detailed one. Like, why all the extra? And I wonder if there was a reason why it was f with someone that he knew and he took... It was just... It's just a lot. That's a lot. I don't know if in his mind, like, he was thinking about all that, but it just seems different. I don't know, because also part of me is, like, I wonder, like... Like... I can't say, like, he's he definitely has doesn't have any remorse, so it's not like he's going to be like, oh, but I wonder if it's, like, it's more dangerous to, you know, yeah. do something a little bit closer to home, you know, because, you know, it's kind of like they they get a high off of yeah. it. So I wonder if it's something like that, uh, but that is crazy, because, like, all I can think of is I wonder if, like, she had to have recognized him. Yeah, which is... Probably, I don't know if he hid in her home or not, but even if he didn't, like, she would have let him in the house. Like, you know. Who knows? It's mm -hmm. just, that one was just, that was too much. Um, obviously, they're all terrible. And this one right here is really terrible. So, on September 16th, 1986, the next year, Dennis struck again. This time, he strangled a mother while her two-year-old was in the home. So her husband actually was going home for lunch that day, which he did like every day to eat. And he discovered his wife, whose name was Vicki Weggerly. And this case was really sad because there wasn't really any evidence as to what happened. And there was really no suspects. And obviously the primary suspect in a murder is the husband. You know, the husband always did it. Mm -hmm. And so he was like looked at yep. as a suspect for a really long time. Which is super sad because, you know, everybody in the community is probably like, we know he did it, blah, blah, blah. So not only did he lose his wife, now everybody's saying he killed his wife. Mm-hmm. So we are at the last victim. On January 19th, 1991, Dennis kills his last victim. On this day, he takes a cinder block and throws it through the sliding glass door of the home of Dolores Davis... After entering the home, like he did so many others, he strangled her and then he took her body and dumped it by a bridge. So again, he takes this body. I don't know why. I don't, there's not really a rhyme or reason to what he does. So, except for, he, he stays pretty clear with the strangulation technique, I feel. So, at this point, he's done killing. He just wants to settle into his life as a Park City compliance officer and father of two children and just chill. Mm. And honestly, he probably could have chilled for a really long time like this. And, uh, mm -hmm. but as we know, Dennis, he can't keep this secret life and just live in peace. He wanted no. the credit. He, he wanted the attention. He wanted everybody to remember. He wanted the fame. Yeah, he wanted everybody to remember who BTK is. So. 
this uh, desire to be remembered was spurred by an article that the Wichita Eagle ran in 2004. So this article was published on the 30th anniversary of the first killings, which were the Otero murders. And it kind of was talking about how, you know, BTK is faded in people's memories and they were probably like, hey, let's like open this case back up or something. I don't know if they ever closed it, but, you know, let's get some eyes back on this case because we should really get this solved. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Dennis wasn't happy that everybody was like, oh, BTK's a has-been. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, a few months after this article... <laughs> He's such a hack. Yeah, fucking right. So, a few months after this article was ran, Dennis sent an envelope to the Wichita Eagle, and the envelope was from a man named Bill Thomas Kilman, or BTK. He's such a loser. Um, so, in this envelope, it included a copy of Vicki Weckerly's missing driver's license and photos of her body... And he was taking credit for this murder. And if you remember, this is the murder where the husband was being blamed. So he was taking credit for this fully unsolved murder up until this point. And basically, with this letter, he was trying to say, Hey, 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 I'm not has-been. I'm still active, people. Um, mm-hmm. And he wanted to keep being active. So he reached out again in 2004 to Cake TV. And this letter that was sent was very complicated. It included a puzzle that had to be decoded. And in the end, the puzzle revealed Dennis's last name, which is Raider, and his street address. Now, I guess this seems, I don't know. This seems like pretty, like, interesting to me. But I guess that nothing came out of this. Um, So he took a little break from reaching out for the rest of 2004. And he waited till December Mm -hmm. 2005 to to start, you know, ramping it back up again. So, one of these little messages was a garbage bag containing Nancy Fox's driver's license and a Barbie doll with a hood over its head and arms tied behind its back. So, he's, like, just dropping these little things that he's stolen and just, like, being a real asshole. And at this point, he was still in contact with the TV station Cake TV, and he mailed a postcard to them with instructions on where to find another object. So when the police found the instructions, they found a cereal box on the roadside of Wichita, and it contained a graphic description of Dennis's first murders, the Otero murders. And there was another doll with this that was positioned in a gruesome way. You know what? I didn't think about this till just now, but I'm curious if these dolls... um were once his daughter's dolls. At this point, she was an adult, but, like, was he taking his daughter's old Barbie dolls and using them for this? That's just gross. Probably. It could be. I would think that, or potentially, like, do you think they could have been the dolls of his victims? That's also true. And he, like, because, you know, he already took, like, he he's obviously not afraid to steal. No. Uh, so I wonder if it's something like that. No. I mean, it was, I mean... It would seem odd that he would go out and purchase these dolls for thinking. this. But if anyone, but if anyone's gonna do it, it'd be yeah. him. He'd be like, "Oh yeah, they're gonna love this." Yeah, yeah. It, yeah, it could be any number of things. Either way, it's weird, unnecessary, and just awful. So, now this postcard, uh, it contained something else that was a little bit more interesting to the authorities. It inquired as to. So he was asking a question with his index card. He was like, "Uh, have you?" Did you find a package at the local Home Depot, perchance? 
Um, and so the investigators went to the local Home Depot and they learned that an employee did find a cereal box in the back of his pickup truck, but he just thought that somebody had threw some trash away in the back of his truck. He was like, I don't know. So luckily the employee still like had the box. So they opened it and, you know, they got out of the trash, they opened it and there was a message in it. This message was from BTK. Now this is the dumbest part. So BTK wanted to ask the police if he communicated with them through a floppy disk if they will be able to trace him. Um, so following this, the police ran a newspaper ad intended for BTK, and the message just said, Rex, it will be okay. Indicating to BTK, send the floppy disk over, it's fine, we will never be able to trace it to you, don't worry about it. <laughs> uh, newsflash, you can't trace a floppy disk back to, you know, its computer. I don't know all the details, but it can be traced. Okay. And of course the police aren't going to be like, uh, yeah, we can trace it. Don't send that floppy disk, man. Like, this is... What? what? <laughs> Not a good call, man. We're gonna totally we're, be able to get We're gonna get you, man. This. Yeah, so about six days later, yeah. Dennis confirms that he got the message, and this message was relayed to him through the police that, you know, they're not gonna be able to track this floppy disk. So he believes them. And Dennis ends up mailing a floppy disk to the police with a message, um... And now the police got him. So a police officer who specialized in these sorts of things was able to trace the origin of the disc. And the metadata revealed that the disc had been used by Dennis, by a man named Dennis, at a Christ Lutheran church and at a Park City library. Mm. So all the police had to do was do a little search of the church, you know, on the internet to see if there was any connection to this church and a man named Dennis. And they quickly saw that the president of this church's council was named Dennis Rader. So they have a name. Now this information, along with DNA samples they obtained, meant that they had him. Now the crazy thing about this mm -hmm. DNA sample, that I got confused actually when you did the Golden State Killer story, the DNA sample that they tested the DNA from the crime scenes against was not actually Dennis's DNA. They got DNA from Dennis's mm -hmm. daughter to test against it. His daughter, I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. she went, she went, she was in a, at a college and I, I feel like it was a state college. She had gone to like their, mm -hmm. you know, health services and got like a pap smear. And so the DNA was turned over to run against the DNA found at the scenes and it, it, it matched. However, you know, you stated mm -hmm. it matched. So, following this, the police go out to arrest Dennis. And as I said in the beginning, they catch him as he's driving home to eat lunch with his wife. And it doesn't take long for him to confess. And he actually does confess after they're like, man, we got DNA on you. So, the following day, Dennis's arrest was announced at the Wichita City Hall. And an audience was gathered and applauded at the news. Dennis ended up pleading not guilty at first... But in the end, he pled guilty to 10 counts of first-degree murder, and this was because there was such an overwhelming evidence against him. And I think he just wanted to be able to talk about his crimes in the courtroom because it said that in the courtroom, mm -hmm. he provided very explicit details of his crime. No, sorry, not crime. Crimes, multiples. Um... 
And so following the, his plea, he had a two-day sentencing hearing. And in the end, he was sentenced to 10 consecutive life terms for a minimum of 175 years with no possibility of parole. And finally, after three decades, BTK was found and he faced justice. Now, as I said, this is a family man murder case. And as much as I would have liked to focus on the family part of it, mostly, it, you know, there wasn't much. I would have had to done like a two-hour episode. But if you want to know mm-hmm. about like how all this affected his family, specifically his daughter, go watch the 2020 episode. And it's called My Father, BTK. His daughter talks about it all, how it affected her. It's like super good. I watched it a couple years ago and I really liked it. And she also has a book. I haven't read it, but it's called A Serial Killer's Daughter. Um, So I plan to read it one day. And one little tidbit too. You remember how I told you that Dennis had really bad grammar? Well, when they released a bunch of like information about him whenever they were trying to find him after a few years, I guess they were releasing it on the TV and they probably released some letters. And his wife, like they were watching TV one day and his wife was like, hey, this is funny. He kind of writes like you. Like, he messes stuff up, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh. So, yeah. <laughs> um, But, yeah, that is. Yeah, she was like, you fuck. She, this killer is an idiot just like you, babe. Uh, so, that is Dennis Raider, a.k.a. BTK. Thank you for that. I You're knew welcome. this was coming down the pipe. Uh, and it he has interesting similarities to like John Wayne Gacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much like, oh, you would never have guessed Community Man. Mm-hmm. But also bondage. Like part of the way that John Wayne Gacy would, you know, be able to overcome his victims uh-huh. was by bonding them. Yep. And just a plug for our original Family Man Murders, which is episode 19. I covered John Wayne Gacy. If anyone wants to go take a listen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. You should definitely take a gander. Um, He is the clown killer. Uh, And uh, this topic specifically has really made me wish and pray that Netflix would change their minds and bring back uh, Mind Chaser. Oh, Mind Hunter. Yep, yep. Mind Hunter on Netflix because they definitely hinted at BTK. Uh throughout the couple the two seasons so they didn't get to it and evidently expensive for netflix to make like shut the hell up you're netflix just do it it's what the people want it's what the people want stop making kissing booth movies no one wants it but yes thank you for enjoying my story it was extremely long people i'm sorry i honestly didn't stumble up on my words as much as i thought i was going to probably because i know this case quite well i would like to think um, but you can tell me otherwise when you email us with hate. <laughs> yep. When you decide to bully yep. Taylor and send her hate messages. Uh-huh. But uh, this week I went with something a little bit shorter because I kind of assumed, one, that you would do something long. Uh-huh. And two, I just realized I'm, I'm going to need some more time to do my initial, uh-huh. you know, one that I wanted to do. Um, but my topic that – my. You know, I'm bringing it all the way back okay. to the very oh, first episode. Oh, yes. Lady, lady Killers. I had a feeling you were going to And initially when we did, yeah, initially when we did Lady Killers, 
I kind of wanted it to be where, you know, it could be someone that kills, like a serial killer that kills women, or it could be a woman who is a killer. Mm-hmm. Obviously, me and Taylor did uh, female killers. I did uh, Eileen Warnos, and you did Blanche Taylor Moore. <laughs> so, no longer my name. Bringing it home. <laughs> yeah, bring it, bring it home to uh, North Kekalaki. So I'm doing that, um, and I am doing mine on the murder of Sarah Stern. Hmm. I don't. I don't know if I know it. Which? Well, I'm gonna tell you about it. Uh, I got most of my information from NBC News, TheBlast.com, and an episode of 2020. Okay. You should definitely watch the episode of 2020. 2020 is just mm-hmm. good. It's called. The title is "With Friends Like These." Okay. So. Neptune, New Jersey is a small coastal town. Um, It's, you know, like the Jersey Shore, but it's like very tight-knit community. Everyone knows everyone. So it's Saturday, December 3rd, and it's a little before 3 a.m. And the Neptune police receive a call about an abandoned vehicle on a bridge. And, you know, the person who calls it in is just like, it's just a feel right. Because, you know, you think like you see a car, Mm -hmm. it's the middle of the night, you know, which just seems kind of odd. Because, especially, if the car didn't have, like, the hood popped up. Like, it didn't seem like it had broken down and it was in working condition. It didn't look wrecked. So, the police do a little bit of digging and they're able to determine that the car belongs to Sarah Stern, who is a 19-year-old local girl. And so, no one is able to get in touch with Sarah. So, police go to her house and there they find the back door is open and the lights are on. And her dog, Buddy, was in its cage, which, in hindsight, is quite unusual because Sarah loved her dog. Mm-hmm. That dog had full reign of the house. It just was very unusual that the dog would be in its cage. Yep. So, police notify Sarah's father that her car was found and that, you know, they haven't been able to locate her. And he immediately drives through the night because he was on vacation in Florida at the time. And... Sarah is quickly determined to be missing, and an investigation is launched. So, Sarah's, and this is all still, you know, in the middle of Mm -hmm. the night. This is all unfolding right there. So, they go over, you know, to Sarah's neighbor, and her neighbor, Robin, told police that she had actually seen Sarah earlier that day, and that Sarah and her best friend, Liam, had dropped off a box of her mother's stuff earlier that day, because Sarah's mom um, had passed, and so it was just a, you know, a box of things that belonged to her, and Sarah wanted her to hold on to it for a bit. So police go over to Liam's home, because, you know, Mm -hmm. he's the last person that they think have found her, or been with her before she disappeared. So it's now 4 a.m. They go over to his house. He appears to have just woken up. They tell him, uh, you know, that they can't find Sarah, and he says, well, I, you know, I saw her earlier that day. They had hung out before he had go to work at 4.30. He worked at a steakhouse. So they hung out during the day, you know, gone to Taco Bell, you know, hung out at her house. And he claims that he hasn't heard from Sarah since that afternoon and that he had lost his phone. So police are told by Liam. You know, she had been, Sarah had been going through a lot recently. Mm -hmm. 
obviously she had to cope with the fact that she lost her mother Mm -hmm. but I guess you know her dad had started dating and that the relationship between her and her dad had gotten worse over the past couple months and she was really having a hard time coping with the loss of her mother and was you know planning to just pack up leave and move to Canada and so that would make sense as to why she would have given her neighbor those boxes you know so it's believed that you know maybe she maybe she she just packed up and left that you know doesn't seem like her but Mm -hmm. maybe you know crazier things have happened so please ask liam if sarah had been depressed and he admits that she had shown some suicidal tendencies and that her and her father had been fighting a lot liam gives details of their overall day together and this sort of helps them get a timeline of everything that sarah had done Mm -hmm. and you know who had seen her last and then on december 6 sarah's family organized a civilian search with over 100 community members to search the area police had locals with boats scanning the river below the bridge and scuba divers actually you know looking underneath Mm -hmm. the surface for any evidence of sarah and they actually learn that there are security cameras that would have pointed Mm -hmm. directly to the bridge However, any cameras that would have been pointed directly towards the bridge and would have shown what had happened that night had not been working for years. So, Sarah's neighbor happened to have a security camera that was pointed directly in front of Sarah's house, and they are able to see Liam's car leaving Sarah's house in the late afternoon, Mm -hmm. which, you know, would corroborate his story that he left to go to work. And then they see Sarah's car leaving the house around 11.45. Now, during questioning, Liam asks investigators, how do they not know that Sarah's body had been washed out to sea? You know, yeah. he's assuming that she's, she's jumped because the river runs directly into the sea. So, you know, how do you, like, y'all are checking the river. How do you know that, you know, it's not in the ocean? But the way that he asked is kind of odd, Mm -hmm. and it kind of is off-putting to the police, um, because a friend would have been like, you know, have you looked in the ocean? Like, why are you, I feel like you could be doing more, you know, whereas he's just more like, kind of curious. And uh, Liam's parents contact an attorney on his behalf, so immediately police have to stop questioning him, but they begin to question his roommate, Preston Taylor. Preston had been friends with Sarah through Liam and had actually taken Sarah to prom one year. So, you know, the three of them were pretty good friends. And Preston told police that he believed Sarah had actually jumped from the bridge. He believed that she, you know, had been depressed. Um, And uh, he seemed a little bit upset about that. But Sarah's neighbor had claimed to see Sarah earlier that day and said that she seemed happy and upbeat. So, it seems odd that, you know, she would have done this. Mm -hmm. But mental health, you never know. Things could switch. So, investigators learn that Sarah had a safety deposit box in a local bank with a large sum of cash that her late mother had left her. And a teller at the bank claimed to have seen Sarah and Liam access that box earlier in the day of her disappearance. Mm -hmm. That's a little weird. But, you know, again, you're thinking, okay, she she got some money. Maybe she packed up and left for Canada with that money. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. 
Anthony Curry, a schoolmate of Liam and Sarah, reached out to police and informed them that on Thanksgiving Day, just before Sarah's disappearance, that Liam had told him that he planned to kill Sarah. Oh. He told police that Liam had told him that he and his friend were planning to strangle Sarah and throw her off the bridge. And Anthony explained to the police uh, that, you know, he kind of just didn't think anything of it because Anthony himself was a filmmaker mm-hmm. and Liam, you know, was, you know, in a, like kind of acting in his film. So he's thinking maybe he's just, you know, getting too into it. Maybe this is a performance. Yeah. When Sarah goes missing, he kind of has this realization that, oh, shit, you know, I think I, I think I know who did this. And this feeling becomes even more when Liam starts to reach out to Anthony. Like, hey, man, let's hang out. And he's like, oh, God. I think I know who killed Sarah, and I think their killer is trying to contact me. And he's getting concerned, you know, if I don't do what Liam says, maybe he's going to, you know, hurt me or my family. Um, So he goes to police. Tells him what they, he knows, and they equip his car with cameras in hopes of capturing Liam. Well, sure enough, Liam and Anthony meet up, and Liam admits to strangling Sarah and that he and Preston threw her off the bridge. He explains that he didn't get very much money from Sarah, but it was enough to live and throw parties. Mm-hmm. The I've watched the video where he confesses, and it's really fucked up because you gotta think, like, this was... Her, supposed to be her best friend mm-hmm. and he admits that it took her, him 30 minutes to strangle her to death That's, oh that is so and, long and he, like yeah and it, he he's just got no remorse for it it's just ridiculous um so police take in preston for questioning and preston takes police back to sarah's house where the murder had taken place and give them them a play-by-play of what him and Liam did to Sarah. He reveals that after Liam killed Sarah, the two hid her in the bushes outside of her house Mm. and then came back later that day to pick up her body and throw her off the bridge later that night. Oh, good. So now they've got this confession. And Preston shows police where Liam had hid a safe with $9,000 of Sarah's money because evidently um, she had been given a large set of money, but she had already spent a decent amount mm-hmm. of it. So Liam was only able to get $9,000 and he had buried it in uh, Sandy Hook, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And Preston enters into a plea bargain to turn his story against Liam in court. So they go through court. Preston, you know, confesses everything that he knows Actually takes them to the bridge, explains everything that mm-hmm. happened, you know, in real time. And Liam is charged with first-degree mur- murder. He's sentenced to life in prison plus 10 mm. years. And Preston is given 18 years in prison for assisting Liam's, uh, assisting Liam in disposing of Sarah's body. Oh. And sadly... There, I mean, that is a bit of closure, but Sarah's body has never been found. So there's, there's really not any closure in it. Um, They have a memorial on the bridge, but it was really sad because she was, 
you know, she was well known in. The, I mean, it would be sad even if uh, yeah, she wasn't well yeah. known, but you know, it, it was a small town. She was well liked. She was big into arts and sports. She seemed like a real sweet girl. Um, and her best friend killed her. I don't. I think I have heard this story. I didn't really remember any of the details, but I vaguely remember it. And it's just, it's just so crazy. Like, I, it doesn't make sense. And it, what was, it was over money, right? Like a little bit of money? Mm-hmm. It was over money. And, you know, he, he, he seemed, like Liam seemed more disappointed that he didn't get uh-huh. as much money as he wanted rather than I've killed my best friend. Yeah, he clearly has, like, no emotions, so he, he was able to act like a friend, but he, he obviously was not a friend. Mm-hmm. But that is the story of Sarah Stern. Wow. And, yeah, I really recommend listening to the 2020 because it was very informative. Yeah, I'm going to put that I'm gonna put that on something I should watch. You should watch the one I recommended, and I'll watch the one you recommended, and then all the listeners, you should watch both. Sure. Yep, and just watch all the 2020s all the time. Yeah. They have a lot of them on Hulu, and they have, like, really good ones on Hulu. Like, they have the Dying Downs one on mm-hmm. Hulu. They have the BTK one. I watched both of those, like, back-to-back when I was in college. Uh, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. But thank you for listening uh, to my story. Um, and thanks for listening for 100 episodes. Yeehaw! It's 100. It's like the 100th day of school when everybody comes and you've got like a t-shirt or something that's got 100 this or 100 that. Or, you you know, everyone used to do like crafts or something. Mm-hmm. 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 100th episode. Yeah. yeah. Um... Thanks for listening for 100 episodes. If you haven't actually been listening for 100 episodes, consider going back and listening. Um, Definitely listen to Family Man Murders. Listen to uh, Lady Killers because that was our very first episode. Um, We we were deep into quarantine and uh, we're so full of hope. And uh, we really didn't know we had a podcast. Mm -mm. So go back, you know, rediscover that with us. Uh, I was still full of hope. I hadn't started law school yet. You you can follow my journey as I dive deeper and deeper into the abyss. Absolutely. Y'all have been with us for uh, her entire law school career. Um, you can With each episode, you can hear the joy fading from her soul. Yeah. I, you know what, though? I think it'll come back. Once I get out of school, I think it'll come back. I'll be out there. You know, when I come home at night, I will get to come home and sit down and not look at a book for like at least 10 at least 10 minutes or so um so it'll come back next summer after i take the bar oh i'm gonna i'm gonna be just have so much pep in my step (laughs) you better you better but thank you for listening uh taylor what's our theme for next week next week we don't really i don't know the title that i kind of was running through i don't is like uh you know like new age crimes new age murders or like you know woo woo kind of murders you know people who sell you crystals but and who act like they're all peace and love but in reality they are you don't even got to be a murder they're just some sort of criminal terrible criminal um so yeah yeah it could be a it could be like a con man situation uh-huh. Um, but maybe they're selling you a bunch of hoobla 
you know, like, oh, tickets to heaven or crystals to cure cancer mm. or moon juice. Yeah, all that sorts of stuff. So, yeah, come back for that. I think that'll be kind of a fun one. Because, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a murder. It can be it can be all sorts of stuff. So, I think that'll be a fun one. So, come back for that next week. I promise, I will promise y'all right here uh, that my story will not be as long next week. I can say that with full confidence. Thank God, for once, she won't be monopolizing the spotlight. Yeah, I will not be going as long. So, if you all hate hearing my voice, congratulations. Episode 101, I'm going to go back to a normal length story. Yeah, um, I can't make promises for myself because I don't know what uh, story I'll be doing, but stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Um, until next week, please follow us on all of our shit. Mm-hmm. Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, all that jazz. Um, and most importantly, stay weird. Goodbye. Goodbye.